much, Chad. Good morning. Well, we had some unexpected vacation time for some senior members of the staff this week. Uh, you could be in prayer for them. So you, you get me again this week. I can't believe how it, how it worked out. But hey, I am uh, absolutely uh, ecstatic to be here this morning and to share uh, this week's message with you. He was a mountain of a man. Six cubits and one span. Nine feet, nine inches by our modern measurements. Scripture calls he and his brothers Anakim, that is, uh, sons of Anak, descendants of the Nephilim mentioned throughout the Old Testament, uh, but maybe most notably in the Hebrew spies report as they returned from surveying the land that God had promised to the Hebrews. Numbers 13, 32 through 33 reads, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. They were a people feared and rightly to be feared. Men of renown, legendary, fierce warriors who ruled with an iron fist. And not just myth or legend, archaeology has found bones of these people scattered throughout the world, even right here in Missouri, no less, if you want to investigate it. Uh, but I digress. Nine feet, nine inches. A giant man. But more than just tall, his chain mail weighed a staggering 125 pounds. Uh, 125 pounds of mail that he was able to move and fight with in the same way an average man would fight in mail weighing around 50 pounds. His spearhead weighed an unimaginable 16 pounds 11 ounces. That is over two gallons of milk on the front of a spear tip. And according to modern science, for the physics of that spear to work effectively, that tip would have been mounted to a 10-foot, 2-inch diameter pole with a 6-pound, 1.2-ounce counterweight on the end so that he could balance it, extending the overall length to 12 feet 7 inches. It would have been an impressive feat just holding the spear, let alone having the strength to utilize it effectively in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Bayonet or pugil stick training in the military is always something soldiers look forward to participating in during their time in basic training, but after that training, there isn't a soldier who wouldn't tell you how exhausting it is how having to fight in such a manner would be an absolute last resort. Everything about Goliath was intimidating. And there is little reason to question why Saul and his soldiers were dismayed and greatly afraid by Goliath of the Philistines. And yet, to a shepherd boy, 
not even old enough to join the military, let alone trained as a soldier, he would stand defiantly in the face of such an intimidating force and boldly proclaim, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Here lies the mystery. How was this child able to take such a stand? What did David know? What did he understand that these grown men, trained soldiers, equipped and experienced in war, fail to understand? The Apostle Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And thus, our stage is set as we continue our series on the book of Romans with a message and our privileged position as sons and daughters of the living God, a God who is vastly greater, vastly more powerful, and vastly more faithful than anything we can begin to comprehend or imagine. But before we begin, let's recall uh, where we left off last week. If you remember last week as Paul was talking to us in Romans 8, 18 through 30, he, he began by saying that we today as Christians, we have a future hope. That is, uh, wherever you are in life, no matter how good it is right now or how bad it is or how bad it's been or whatever that looks like, wherever you are in life, the future in front of you is far superior to whatever you're experiencing now. And for us, that's, that's really great news. I don't care who you are. That's, that's, that's wonderful news to know that it's better. Matter of fact, he goes on to talk about suffering and to say uh, the value of what is in front of us is worth the price of whatever we are enduring uh, today. And we kind of, he, he, again, the future glory, it's worth whatever we face in this life right now. And again, that is, that is outstanding news. And he continued, uh, not just that uh, what we experience in life, whatever that's like, that, that, that what's in the future is, is worth the price. But he goes on and he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. That you and I today, we can be sure that God is using all things Good things, bad things, everything in between, whatever we're experiencing in life, God is using all things to accomplish his purpose in and for his children. That there is, is purpose in everything, even in suffering for Christians. Purpose in everything. That is, that is wonderful news. Again, great news. 
that leads us up to this week. And we, we begin, and, and Paul begins by pointing to the everlasting love of God. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul begins, he says, man, God is for us. And if you, everybody here, if you've seen the kids be like, we should all be doing that. Our minds should be blown because we just spent, I mean, we, we went through chapter one, God's indictment of the entire world, that the entire world has fallen apart. And then he goes from this big picture of how everything's broken and how we all fall short of the glory of God, and he gets really personal. There is no one that does good. That we all fail to meet the mark. That God has every reason to look at you and I and say, nah, nah. But instead, he chooses to love us. He chooses to, it's just an amazing thing, that God, in spite of our failings, that God is for us. Tremendous statement. But it is a uh, conditional statement. Did you catch? If, if. God is for us. There's some, some conditions for God to be for us, and that condition begins at the cross. Begins with if we are in Christ Jesus. And, 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 and he goes on and he reminds us that, that God gave his son for us. And everybody's favorite scripture passage, right? John 3, 16 through 17. I want you to catch it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, and there's our conditional clause, right? There it is. You have to believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's conditional upon our belief. But for that belief, do you understand? Nothing could stand against us because nothing could stand against him. It's beautiful. And, you know, I say it's conditional. Well, if you just go to the next verse, John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Belief, freedom from condemnation. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God of God. Then he goes on, he, he, he talks about all things. I, I want you to, to, to hear it again, because uh, it's a big deal. He didn't spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what is this all things? And, and what, the, what, what Paul's trying to say is, look, he, get, he sent his only son to give us the greatest thing. Can we not then trust him? To provide everything else we need. He took care of the big thing. We can trust him with all things. And I'm, I'm reminded of, of this great message that Jesus preached. His Sermon on the Mount. His most famous sermon. And we, we pick this thing up in Matthew 6. And he, he, he begins by giving us this picture. He says, won't you, won't you look at the birds? 
I want you to, to look at the lilies of the valley. I want you to look at the flowers. And I want you to consider how God takes care of these things. They do not worry about their needs. They trust instinctively that God is going to provide for all their needs. And Jesus sums it up, Matthew 6, 32 through 33. He says, the Gentiles seek after all what? These things. All things, this food and drink and clothes. Uh, the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That is the first thing, the important thing. God sent his son to deal with that thing. We seek him. And we can trust God to take care of the rest. And I don't care who you are in this room. I mean, we've got lots of needs. God meets every one of them. We've got lots of wants. And the truth is, if you're sitting in this room today in this nice, warm facility, you're getting some wants, too. He's a good God. All right? He is. But he provides for us every step of the way. And we as Christians, we can trust him to provide for us. Amen is right. That's exactly right. He transitions. We transition to the, a picture of the sovereign grace of God. Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That is, the Christians, the church. Who, who shall bring any charge against them? It is God who justifies. Who's there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And we get this, this courtroom picture, right? The judge, the only real judge, he has justified us. He has sent his son to pay the price for each and every person who would believe. He's already, he's already paid the sentence. Who is it that's going to argue with this God? Who is it that's greater? Who is it that's going to bring charges? The judge has already ruled. The sentence has already been served. Who? And I love how he, he, he says, it's not that, that Jesus, Jesus paid the price. He died on the cross for our sins, but he's not there anymore. Do you understand? The tomb is empty. He is not there. And Jesus, the, 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 our defense attorney, all right, in the, in the grand cosmic trial scene, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He's got a book, the Lamb's Book of Life. We read in Revelation, and, and the name of every one of his children is written in it. And though an accuser might come and say, well, what about this and what about that? He's my child. That price has been paid. He's in my book. Who's going to argue with God? Victory there, man. We can, we can rest that. He goes from, from the sovereign grace of God to the eternal love of God. It's more good news. Romans 8, 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, who? Who is greater than God that he could separate us from his love that God has, has chosen to, 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 to give us? Who? Who is it? Name that person. Who's greater? No one. Nothing. What is greater? Is sickness and fame? Can all these stuff? No. There is nothing greater. Not COVID-19, not whatever's going on in politics, not a war, not missiles falling in Poland, not, not sickness, not, nothing. Nothing is greater than God. Can't separate us. And again, he reminds us, there's even purpose in, in suffering. He quotes Psalm 44, 22, yet for your sake. Did you catch that? For your sake, there's purpose. Right, right there, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We'll, we'll see suffering, but it's for your sake. And, and Paul's not writing this from a laboratory, from a vacuum. Man, read the book of Acts. Read about Paul's life and, and understand tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. Paul himself would lose his head for the name of Jesus Christ. He's not writing this from a vacuum. He's living this thing out. And as we're, we're doing Philippians this week with the kids, you know, or, 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 or in 2.12, as he's writing from prison of the great love of God, right there where he's at. He's not writing from a vacuum. Paul gets it. We need to get this message. Nothing, nothing can separate us. We have victory in Jesus Christ. We have victory in Jesus. Romans 8, 37, know in all these things. What things? Everything we've been talking about here. You understand, all of Romans 8 connects to 7, connects to 6, connects to 5, connects to Genesis 1. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not because we're so awesome. David was not so awesome. We'll talk about that in a minute. But God is. We are more than conquerors through him. And there is no trial, no tribulation, no famine, no struggle that we cannot overcome in Christ Jesus. There is no separation between us and him as far as that goes. What did we talk about? Just, just two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit alive in us. God in us. This is great news. This is great news. We have victory in Jesus. And he goes on, Romans 8, 38 through 39. I am sure, Paul says, I am certain, strong words here, strong phrase, strong Greek words, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Do you hear him? Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I was thinking about 
pictures. I love scripture. I love the consistency of God through all his word as he reveals himself to us. It's just there, every single page. And as I, nothing can separate us, uh, one of my very, very favorite psalms, this passage, come to my mind, Psalm 139, verse 1 through 18. I'd actually ask you uh, to close your eyes, and I want you to listen to what the psalmist writes. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with There is nowhere, no one, and absolutely nothing that can separate a Christian from the love of God. Nothing. So what's the point? Why does all of this matter to me today in this room? Well, as Christians, that is, in Christ Jesus, those who would believe, God is for us, he is in us, he is with us, now and forever. He never fails. Never fails. I fail. God does not fail. He is with us. The question is, are you today, are you in Christ Jesus? As Christians, that is, in Christ Jesus, there is nothing 
that can overcome us. Absolutely nothing. Not, not sickness, not a, a Goliath, not, not catastrophes in the world, not catastrophes in my head, not, not nothing. There is nothing that cannot be overcome in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So, again, my question is, are you today, are you in Christ Jesus? As Christians, that is, in Christ Jesus, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from God's love. Nothing. Are you in him? Are you in Christ Jesus today? Do you believe? Is your identity built on who Christ is and on who he says you are? I hope so. I hope so. Now, I know what you're thinking, you know. Wait a minute, Sean. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, huh? You haven't even mentioned my biggest enemy, my biggest frustration. That person staring back at me in the mirror every day. What about me? I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're thinking. I'm glad you asked that question. Now, we began today with a story about a giant and a little shepherd boy who was just crazy enough to believe that God is who he says he is and that if he is for us, not even Goliath, could stand against him. David's early life was full of victories. And the truth is, each was just as extraordinary as this one, just, just as miraculous. But that is only one part of David's story. It's only one part of his story. Eventually, prosperity would seem to have numbed David a bit uh, to his reliance on God, dulling his senses. And David would commit a series of heinous sins, resulting in the murder of one of his most faithful soldiers, a man named Uriah, after an affair with an unexpected pregnancy with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. We've talked about this before. You've, you've heard this story. David, the man after God's own heart, sinned, and he sinned mightily. In time, the prophet Nathan, sent by the Lord, would confront David exposing his sin and laying out the consequences of David's indiscretions and rebellion against God's holy law. We pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 through 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And of course, we see a different David 
after this, a broken David who seen himself clearly in the mirror and found himself lacking. What about me, Sean? A David who is experiencing the searing consequences of his sinful choices, not just for himself, but for those around him. Had to look at Bathsheba as she lost her child too, you understand. Pain. But I don't, I don't want us to focus on David though, save to see ourselves and our brokenness reflected in him in this moment. But I want you to see the love and grace of God towards David. The Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. It is here. In the wake of the consequences of his greatest failure that David understands nothing can separate us from the love of God and you see it in David's response after the death of his son then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped David understood what it meant to be more than a conqueror in Christ. He slung a rock. He watched a giant fall. David understood the depths of the love of God, the grace of God towards his children. My hope and prayer is that each of us today would go home with a greater understanding and appreciation for the Lord our God, that he would be exalted and magnified and elevated in our minds and that wherever we are in life, whatever challenges are before us, whatever victories are ahead, whatever, whenever that we find our lives rooted, resting secure in the very capable arms of a God who is for his children, with his children, in his children, whose love, grace, and mercy extend eternally for his children, children who will stand victorious forever in Christ Jesus our Lord. My hope and prayer is that you are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how great your love for us. It truly, it's knowledge so high I cannot attain it. I can spend the rest of my life trying to wrap my mind around it and I will never never understand fully how great is your love for us 
how great the victory that you have secured for us in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Father, thank you. Thank you. And Father, I pray for each and every person in this room that is in Christ Jesus, that today they would be encouraged right where they're at. The knowledge that you love them, that you're for them, that you are with them, and you will never let them fall. That you are providing. You are a good Father. And Father, if there is even one person in this room who has not yet answered your call to salvation, Father God, I pray that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Even if it's just a glimpse, a glimpse a glimpse starts a fire right there, Lord, and just let them see you. Let today be the day of salvation for them, that they can know the freedom, the joy, the unending love that we know as we stand in you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.